Welcome to another pint with Shawnee B. I'm in Chiswick in London in a lovely house with a friend I met only about two months ago and I'm meeting for the second time. His name is Bob Osborne. Before we started uh, press record, I was trying to work out what to describe him as and we've come up together with Renaissance man, but we don't want that to sound in a pretentious, posh way. It's kind of ironic, okay? So he's a Renaissance man. His brand is called Rebel Not Taken and he'll explain to us why that is. He's traveled the world. He's a poet. He's an artist. So welcome, Bob Osborne. Hi, Sean. Welcome. We aren't having a pint. We're having a glass of white wine, a... which also plays into the Renaissance man yeah. thing, but do not think of it like that. We're having a glass of Sauvignon Blanc from... <laughs> the local wine, wine from shop. New Zealand. <laughs> right, let's start with Rebel Not Taken. Yeah. Where did that come from? Rebel Not Taken. One of my ancestors in 1685 took part in the rebellion against the king, the king of England, James right. II. Basically, someone called the Duke of Monmouth, who was a playboy prince... Mm-hmm. wanted to come back, get an army together, overthrow the monarchy, which was um, uh, Catholic. And so he got what's called a pitchfork army together. Basically, he trawled around the West Country, got all the disaffected nerdy wells and peasants, completely ill-equipped. I think it was a couple of thousand. My ancestor, Alexander Osborne, was one of them. And in 1685, they tried to overthrow the monarchy by marching on Bristol, then planning to march on London. So it was, you know, played into a lot of that discontent. Unfortunately, they came against the King's army, which was headed by Winston Churchill, which is not the current no, Winston no. Churchill, but his ancestor, who, of course, had cavalry. So on the last, I think, the last battle on English soil, with the Battle of um, Sedgemoor, the Duke of Monmouth's army were pretty much wiped out. A lot of them escaped, including, fortunately, my ancestor, and they went into hiding uh, for two years because the ones that were caught had their hung, drawn and quartered yeah. or sent by Judge Jeffreys to be executed. An unpleasant way to die. Some of them were sold as slaves to the uh, colonies. A lot of them were killed. So the, the few that escaped were called in the assizes by Judge Jeffreys. They were labelled rebel not taken. And I thought, brilliant, because rebel not taken has got all the things you want as an artist. Yeah. You know, it's rebel, you've escaped, yeah. you know, you're outside the system, you know, and uh, you've got away with it. Yeah. So, you know, I decided to make that my art brand. But other people were Daniel Defoe, famous novelist, who got pardoned because he had good connections, and a guy called Peter Blood, who was actually a doctor, and he got sent to the Caribbean, and he became Captain, Captain Blood. He became a pirate, That's Captain right. Blood. My ancestors were a good company, but basically they were complete peasants. After two years, he got pardoned. He went back and then produced loads of children, as all my ancestors have done. I've been in touch with a, one of my cousins in Australia, because a lot of my family got sent out to Australia as convicts yeah. in the 19th century, which I'm proud to say. And she worked out that from that single man, his progeny, 250,000 people around the world wow. are derived from him. Right. Escaping, surviving that battle and going into hiding. So, it, But you wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. Yeah. So it's all, it's all fortuitous and, yeah. you know, it's chance and it's serendipity. And that's the way that kind of one of the things that informs my work. That it's all a bit chancy. You know, we're lucky to be here. Things happen. And having worked that all out and read all about it and gone into it in detail, because I'm an obsessive researcher, mm. I get interested in, I research obsessively. You know, I, I then realised in hindsight how it had informed all my work, you know. Before you knew. Yeah, before I knew what so I So you did. had something in you. I worked instinctively. Yeah. And, of course, I was probably most well known for my work in Cornwall when I was working with Driftwood and Salvage and stuff. So let's go back. Where were you born? I was born at, at the end of this long project. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, eventually these guys came up from Somerset in the 19th century looking for work. Came yeah. up to London and they came to Twickenham and they were hawkers, fish dealers, you know, selling pegs. Tinkers. Traditional tinker stuff, yeah. My grandfather, Edward Osborne, married a Roman gypsy called Nellie and she had all the um, rights to the shops. She ran the whole empire. She had 18 children. So what shops did she have? Well, we had shops in just um, metal and all Portland Road, right? In, in Kensington, Clarendon Road, which is now Ironmongers, I think. No, right? it was junk shops. Junk shops. Um, Score scrap metal, but basically we, we amassed an empire, or they amassed an empire of shops and property, you know, through kind of nefarious means. Plus, there were convicts in our family too. So one of my uncles did twenty-one years in Brixton, was pulled for the great train robbery. So it's all that kind of low life in, as it was London then. Of those 18 children, 11 survived. They're all boys, 17 boys wow. and one girl. My father was the second youngest. So I grew up in, we had stables in 
and we were going out with horses and carts in the 50s in London, right. you know, in Holland Park and Nighthill Gate before it became fashion. Collecting old iron and steel, any old iron, any old junk, iron. Yeah, yeah, selling all the um, all the junk off to scrap metal dealers, selling all the rags to, you know, that thing. And then, because my father couldn't read or write, and none of them could read or write, although they were sharp, you know, they had other um, ways to make They were streetwise. But, you know, the benefits of that were that um, they had vans, they had horses and carts, and it, whenever the authorities came around, they just opened the door saying, I can't read or write. And at that time, they think, oh, they wouldn't bother with you because, you know, what can you do? So, you mean with a summons or whatever? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They were very much outside the system. Were you born into, like, poverty or were you fairly well off? Right? No, mainly poverty. Right. But there were times when we did come across large sums of money, either by robbing warehouses or getting the right antiques at the right time in the 60s. So there were times when we had money, but basically my, my father would piss it all away on drinking and gambling. And really? All the men were drinkers and gamblers. Where did you come in the order of merit? Did you have brothers and sisters? I didn't have any brother, uh, straight brothers and sisters. My dad, my mum left him when I was about five, but then I spent half the time with my dad and half the time with my mother. My mother had a nervous breakdown. She was only 18 when she had me. Really? So both her parents started having a gas oven. <laughs> you know, because at that time they didn't know what cancer was. So it was all a bit fractured. It was quite harsh, but it was a time when just people got on with stuff. I spent half the time with my mother and her parents, and then the other half of the time with my dad. And when I was, was at my dad's, it was mainly like hanging around pubs, hanging around betting offices, which I learned a lot because I learned how to calculate odds. I learned how to make money out of people, how to tap people up, mm. how to run little kind of dodgy businesses. So did you do stuff like find the lady and all that, the card tricks? And yeah, they were doing that. My dad used to play spoons. Yeah, my yeah. dad played spoons. He played poker. We had a pet monkey. <laughs> What's uh, the pet monkey? Yeah, name? we had a pet monkey called Wanker. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Where did he come from? Well, one of my other uncles called Popeye was in the Navy and he went to South America and he came back and he, at that time there weren't the regulations there. Yeah, you could come back he, with a monkey. He turned up and said, oh, well, I've got a monkey. So we thought, great. So I actually befriended this monkey and we used to dress it up in my school uniform, take it down the pub with Brilliant. a cap and a blazer and give it a bottle of Macassan and people would come in, oh, what are you having? You know, buy the monkey a drink. So it was another way to get people to buy you drinks. Yeah. But so it was a pretty big monkey if it fitted no, into your school uniform. But I was like, yeah, I, you were eight or nine at the time. All right, but it wasn't so, like a tiny little thing, like no, an no, organ grinder's monkey. It was a chimp, chimp right? It was a chimp, but you know, it, yeah, it was baggy. And was it vicious? It well, it wasn't vicious, but it had the terrible habit that caused us to have to get rid of it. Beaten that's, off. That's why we called it wanker. Yeah. <laughs> Where did I guess? It would just, we were living in rented digs swung by some Welsh lady. The landlady had kind of pretensions to you know some kind of social standing and she didn't really want uh, a with a monkey running around the wall screeching and you know and wanking all the time so <laughs> she came and said look unless the monkey's got to go or you've all got to go so my dad hatched a plan to go down the pub where some guy had said oh i love your monkey it's so funny he said well i'll tell you what i'll play you poker if you win you can have the monkey and if i win you know you can buy us a load of drinks so, of course, he did, but he lost. He lost on purpose. So I took the monkey home. Middle of the night, just knock on the door. There's Have a woman, you woman out there with like arms like man's legs. You bastards, you know, you've conned my husband into bringing this monkey home. It's been wanking all over the place and screeching all night. You've got it back. <laughs> what happened to monkey? Well, what happened to wanker? Yeah, we had a kind of extra Killers. EGM in, in this rented room. Decided we got to get rid of it. So we took it to Holland Park in the van. And released, it, put it, into released the it into the wild. <laughs> How long did it last there? Probably not very long. <laughs> At that time, feel a bit guilty now, you know, yeah. the animal rights and things like that, but that's what you used to do. And what was your mum like? Was she... Yeah, my mum was um, was really young. She used to like go to Butlins and win the beauty contest because she did a bit of modelling and stuff like that. Although she came from a very poor background, she didn't want to grow up with criminals. Yeah. Uh, and... And I don't think she wanted me to really come heavily under that influence. So the fact that I was kind of partly taken away from this environment did enable me to, to learn to read and write. So and she put you to school. school? I went to school, yeah. Right, I was the right. first one to. Were you really? I school. You know, because I had such kind of gifts. I got a scholarship to go to a Ponzi RAF grammar school. What age were you then? I was 11. Oh, so uh, secondary then, school, yeah? Yeah, my mum had left and gone to, to live in Spain. She had a breakdown. Both her parents had killed themselves. So I was then living with my dad. 
that he's to take me to school on the horse and cart. And I'd say, look, just drop me at the end of the road because we had this uniform and all the teachers were back to Britain pilots. So suddenly I'm kind of catapulted into this world of, you know, the military. And it was a military school. You know, we would do cross-country running and learn all about how we beat won the war. Yeah. You know, it was all, all the lessons were history. Were you bullied in that school? Yeah, to a certain extent because, you know, they see you coming. Yeah, you're a difference. And cart, so, you know, we need tacking on the... It's like a gypsy thing, you know. So yeah, it was it was a bit harsh, but um, I walked out at sixteen. Yeah, I didn't like the regime, and so I went to the Isle of Wight Pop Festival in nineteen seventy. Grew my hair, become a hippie, went back to the school, and of course they said short back and sides at the school only. Go and get your hair cut. So yeah. I didn't, because I really wanted to leave, and I just used it as an excuse. And I remember the headmaster said to me, "You'll end up like your dad. You'll be in the Roman Scrubs, which was next door to our school." You'll end up like all your family because they knew some of my family were in the scrubs. You'll never amount to anything. How was, did your dad end up there? Well, my dad um, lived on and he actually died of cirrhosis of the liver. Big drinker. When I was about 30, they were all big drinkers and they all had yellow arms from smoking. One of my uncles had his leg cut off because he had gangrene because he wouldn't, they said, they should give up smoking and then cut your leg off. And yeah. uh, he said, well, all right, take it off. They were all living a bit at that time, like kind of reckless. Was there any happy memories apart from the Lose. banker, the monkey? It was harsh. My dad was running prostitutes, so you know we were, we were pimping. So I grew up a lot with um, with prostitutes. And my first crush when I was about thirteen was my dad's partner, although she was actually working her trade with with MPs and judges because mm-hmm. she was a real beautiful Liverpool Irish with black hair and blue eyes. My first crush was on her. And I remember waking up when she'd be in the morning putting her lipstick on and then she'd go out to work and uh, I'd like lick her cup so the lipstick it was a it was a, you know for a, an artist monk it was kind of perfect growing up conditions because there was all this color all this scandal you know a lot going on and you had to kind of duck and dive a lot and you had to learn fast and think on your feet so I do remember an awful lot of laughter because um they just like live for the moment, which does have consequences, but they seem to be getting away with it. You know, we'd be squatting places in Holland Park and stuff like that, and everything kind of seemed to collapse, and then something else would happen. We, no flies. No, we, 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 we did manage to make money, um, which was then hastily drunk or gambled away. And of course, the humour was superb because um, they kind of all spoke in this patois, which was a combination of, of rhyming slang, gypsy, yeah. you know, a lot of swear words. So again, that's something that's always informed my work. And I love um, the whole low life, feeling of low life. Yeah. You know, and then latterly I've watched like Minder and The Swing. Yeah. What football club was your... Football was was QPR. And and again, QPR was a big club in the community. They would come to the school. So we'd have people like Ron Spring. It was actually a goalkeeper at the time. This is in the 60s. So again, I started supporting QPR because my granddad used to also take me down there. So when I left school, I, I went. Yeah, I went to work at QPR. And I wanted to be a footballer because I played. You handy? Yeah, I was okay. Probably not good enough to make the grade, but you know, one of my contemporaries was Jerry Francis. Oh, who yeah. was a couple of years younger than me, but he then. They did a great team in the seventies. He became yeah, he became um, England captain. Tony Curry and Stan Bowles. And That's right. That. Yeah, yeah. yeah, my tribe. Did you say your mother died earlier as well? No, her mother's no. still alive. Oh, she's still uh, alive. Mother's still alive. She's eighty odd now. Will she listen to this? She will. Yeah. Yeah. She will. Yeah. I mean. Uh, it has been written about. I mean, the, the book that I gave you. Yeah, um, his book is called Constructions, English Hedonists, uh, Bob Osborne. It's by Peter Davis. So this is a this is a book about your life by this guy. It's written by an art critic. A lot of it is is academic, all about my work, especially the work that was done down in St Ives, where it became quite well known. But there is one chapter which I wrote, and okay. that's about my ancestors with the rubber not taken thing, and then. What's that world like today? It's gone. All my cousins, you know, I've got hundreds of cousins, obviously, because having 11 uncles, all of whom had about eight or nine children, I've got hundreds of them. Yeah. A lot of them were moved out of that area. A lot of them didn't fare too well because they had lack of education. A lot of them, you know, obviously carried on the kind of genetic interest in taking drugs and drinking and, yeah. and crime and stuff like that. So a few of them I know I am in touch with, but generally, that world has gone. Yeah, it's increasingly difficult to be an outsider. In it's eighty quid to go to Queens Park Rangers. Exactly, yeah. everything like that. Yeah. You, know, you you can't just have a van or a horse and cart. You, yeah. you, you know, obviously you've got yeah. 
jump through hoops to get anything now. So it's very difficult to exist on on the breadline hmm. and have a good life. You've either got to be in the system or if you're not in the system, you've had it. As you were growing up, were you like, oh, look at your man with his schools and his uniforms and his... Yeah, I struggled two worlds, you know, so I was in that situation where I was kind of moved away from all my family in yeah. the sense that I was then becoming in, interested in literature and art. Uh, I, I lived in two worlds, which was good, so I had the benefits of both of it, really. But then I never really, when I was at school, never really felt accepted. I always felt like an outsider in a respectable world. And I still do to a certain extent. Um, You're fighting that? Yeah, I was very rebellious when I was a teenager. But then I learnt, there's a quote that I quite like, I think from a guy called Henry Green, a 20s novelist, and the quote is, living well is the best revenge. When I managed to get myself together to go to university, I embarked on a quite hedonistic career of hanging out with a lot of rich people, posh girlfriends, staying in chateaus. You know, So I like the aristocrats and I yeah. like the peasants. I just yeah. struggle with all So the you were handsome, were you? Lady yeah, killer. I was, yeah, I was. I was when I was younger. I was, um, yeah, I was a proper ladies' man. Yeah, right. And they liked your sort of knockabout book yeah, accent so. and all that stuff. I mean, I did. There's a photograph in that book of me living in a cave in Crete in '77. So you know, I did live around the Greek islands. I, I love the Greek them. islands as well. We talked about this before. Yeah, fantastic. If you had to go somewhere in Europe, there's still places that you That's can right. you can knock around there. And the bit I want to try and just bridge is, you came back from the Isle of Wight festival, a hippie. And then you, you quit school, mm. and now you're saying you went to university. How did that work? Yeah, I got basically I got thrown out of school. I got a job on a building site. I told my mother that I'd been expelled from school, and she was a bit mortified. So I then went to night school, and I wanted to study literature and philosophy. So I did A-levels at night school while I was working on a building site, and I did all my A-levels in a year, and I really wow. grafted did things like get all the exam papers from the last five years and work out the odds of Hamlet's yeah. soliloquies coming Treating up them in, like a horse in, race. in the literature <laughs> Yes, absolutely. So I, I knew that I'd, I'd have to gamble in order to get A grades, and I did gamble, and I studied all Hamlet's soliloquies because I knew that question came up in various forms, and that if it came yeah. up again, that's all I learned. I didn't bother reading Hamlet, I just answered the questions. Yeah. So I got all the past exams. One of the biggest problems with the education system right there. Exactly. But, you know, you can circumvent it if you're smart. Yeah. So I did manage to con my way into getting all A grades. They said I could go to Oxford or Cambridge, but I didn't want to go there because I thought it was full of public school boys and there weren't enough women in there. And I didn't really want to study from Chaucer through to Jane Austen. I just wanted to do modernism. What were the books that were turning you on back At then? At that time... I was really keen on um, Hemingway. Some of the Irish lads? Yeah, of course. You know, George came later. Henry Miller. Jay Dowell. Yeah, lastly, I got into um, Thomas Mann. Right. Um, Henry James, yeah, fantastic. Um, but they took me, I went for an interview at East Anglia, and they didn't even ask me what my grades were. And because I went there with a donkey jacket and a kind of bit of an attitude, I was interviewed by a guy called Vic Sage, who turns out to be... That was a very left-wing university. It was a Marxist or a Trotskyist. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they more or less said, we want you here. And I said, well, why is that? They said, well, because we want people like you now to come into these universities. Right. You know, because at that time, it was all the sit-ins and, you know, it was going through that whole... Winter of discontent yeah, and all that, yeah. movement. But not that, that particularly interested in me. Mm. But then I felt a bit pissed off that they didn't ask me what... I said, well, do you want to ask me what my grades were? I'm like managed to get all A grades and you, yeah. you just said you're going to give me a place without it yeah. he said oh I like like your attitude so basically I got a place to study creative writing did you know you were different yeah I've always felt different always felt different my nan when I was a kid I was blonde and all my family were like dark yeah and my granny the gypsy used to say you're different you're an angel you know you're not like all them you're going to make something of yourself so I always did you have a drive in you when you were a teen to go I'm going to show everyone yeah Absolutely, it was, was about getting back authority. But then I soon learned that the best way to get back of it was to kind of play it its own game. Yeah, as you said earlier. So yeah. I went to a really radical university, but rather than going on all the sit-ins, I did all my studying and I used to hang around with all the aristocrats going off to places in the south of France, trying to get off with the rich women, but just having a really good time. I didn't really think that I'm selling out my class to a certain extent. I just thought, well... I deserve all those centuries of people being starving and being peasants. I'm like the tip of that spear that needs now to have a good time. Yeah. And that's payback. 
So I'm not going to go and... But in fairness, your work always pays homage to that. And also the irony that you have. And that's the, it. The but kind of tongue-in-cheekness. I needed to, to be See how they live. Yeah. and happy yeah. to produce that work. So that's my justification. Were you happy when you were 18, do you reckon? 18 was hard. Um, I mean, you know, around that time was Yeah, it? I've always been happy. But 18 was hard because I had been kicked out of school and I had to, like, work and study. So... I actually have an inbuilt discipline, which I think was what the military school gave me, funny enough. You know, it's one thing I did take out of that, was that every morning we had to run around wearing with scrubs and just a vest and a shorts. And at the time I thought, I'm Chariots never, of fire. I'm never going to go, when I leave school, I'm never going to go across country running again. <laughs> I probably would have said the same. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's you know, freezing. And, um, you know, we were around the scrubs. We used to stop for a meat pie halfway around. The, the last boy always used to get the cane. And we all were caned systematically. But you knew that if you weren't last, you wouldn't get the cane. There was always a fat boy who was last who was going, was going to get the cane. So we'd stop for a meat pie. In, fat boy in, would have three. In, in the cold, <laughs> in a little, little, one, little kiosk, you know, and a cup of tea just to keep us going. Got back. And then when the sports day occurred, I had to do this running. And I came second. This sounds a bit like that loneliness of the long distance run. Oh, yeah. Tom anyway, I came second to the schoolboy champion because I was quite nippy. And the headmaster said, oh, you know, come into my office. And he said, oh, you came second today, but every time, every week, you're nearly last when you run around the scrubs. I said, that's because I stopped for a cup of tea and a pie to make sure that, you know, as long as I don't get the cane, yeah. you know, why would I want to push myself? So he gave me the cane. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I've like brought glory to the school, nearly, and, um, and I've got punished. Yeah. For, for it. So was there? A, did you come across much sexual shit going on and all that? Yeah, they, all the time. Yeah, the gym teacher was later put in prison for interfering. You know, the boy used to yeah. cane every week, and uh, yeah, I think they were all at it. You still got mates from those times? Yeah, I've still got friends. One of them actually just gone to the scrubs for two years. <laughs> uh, he became a very successful businessman, but he lost his temper and oh. road rage thing. He's in the scrubs, but um, I've still got a few friends. Yeah, not many. But it's a long time ago. I mean, it's 1970 I when I left. So you're swanning around with all the rich ladies around Europe. You're in your early 20s now? Yeah, I was in my mid-20s. Right. Uh, yeah. At that time, I considered myself a poet. I was living in Spain, then I was doing a bit of teaching, then I went to see Robert Graves, the poet that lived on Mallorca. Ah. And I became under, influenced by him. What was he like? He was fantastic. I don't think he was in the First World War, so yeah. it was a completely different generation, but he did take a shine to me and... You know, I learned a lot from 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 him about love poetry. And what age was he then? Like seventies? He was eighty then. He was, 80, he was yeah. actually senile, but people thought he was senile. But he lived in a kind of a very inner world, and for some reason, every time I used to take tea with him, he would go into regression. He regressed me back to the First World War, and I said to his wife, "I was like, what's going on?" Because he's talking to me in this strange language. She said, "The reason he invites you to tea every day is because he thinks that you're the reincarnation of someone he was in the trenches with." He had a habit of doing that. He was a bit of a magus, but, you know, when you're kind of 22, 23, you're writing poetry, you know, it's kind of, a, it's a very powerful thing. Of all the kind of successful artists that I've met and hang out with, he's probably the one that I've considered to be the most touching on genius, beautiful poetry that he wrote. Um, but yeah, I, I moved around a lot, and then I was living around the Greek islands, and then I hooked up with a... A Swedish girl and I went back to living in Sweden and she was trying to get pregnant so I kind of ducked out of that and then spent about 10 years writing poetry and I published a book of poetry in 1977 called A Moon in Leo and that was pretty much all small poems about my travels and my girlfriends and things like that so it was quite sensual bordering on kind of not erotica but you know so, it was all about what young about a young man's life yeah, yeah. style what do you think of it now if you read it? They were great. I mean, some, some it, were yeah. published in quite serious magazines. You know, don't forget, I was studying creative writing with, with really good people like Angus Wilson and Malcolm Bradbury and Ian McEwan was there a couple of years before me. So the, the, the whole legacy of East Anglia, of yeah. creative writers, Ishiguru, Rose Tremaine, it was like a hotbed of creative writing. So I had good teaching. But then I developed my own style. But I spent about two years writing poetry and then I decided... 
like Mozart, I've probably done my best work when I was 27. Was it a good feeling of achievement when the book got published? Yeah, it was good. It, it, it was good, you know, I, I kind of... Be there forever? I revere the written word, you know, coming from a background where people... I used to have books, and any books we got when we were out on the horse and cart would be thrown away, and I said, no, don't throw that away. So I, yeah. I remember keeping the collected works of Byron. You know, I opened it, I thought, this is, this is like, fantastic. This is like, you know, I used to smell the pages and stuff like that and keep it by my bed. And uh, when we had the stall down the Portobello Road, I'd have all my books under the stall, so I'd be selling books, and my dad said, oh, no idea, you can make money selling books. <laughs> of course you can, you make money selling anything. You'll see there's books all over my house, and, yeah. you know, I revere books, I studied them, and now I'm, I've written three this year and got my own publishing company, so yeah, I do revere the, the written word, although I did move to being a visual artist, but that was because it was more hands-on, you know, it's more tactile, and it's more sensual, and it's more like having a physical object on the wall. Yeah. So what was the next chapter then after, say, you know, the Swedish girl and, you know, you've, you've written your poetry book and you're probably, what, now late 20s? Uh, I was, yeah, I was about 30 and I decided that it probably wasn't a good idea to just spend all your life just hitchhiking around Europe. So I then came back to London and hooked up with um, a girlfriend I'd had at university. Her father was a spy. She grew up in Moscow. And I kind of liked that world. In another life, I would like to have been one. Would you so, be a good spy, I'd say. Yeah, so she got pregnant, they got married, and then I had a daughter, then I had another daughter two years later. So then I thought, Christ, I've got to start trying to get somewhere to live and make money. So I put my mind to it, and I bought myself a little flat in Chiswick by hook or by crook for 21000 and we lived there. And then the property boom started happening. I didn't have any money, but I managed to get a job with Odbins, who were wine merchants at that time. I saw an advertisement in the paper saying, wine takers wanted. I thought, that's my kind of job. <laughs> so I went for this interview with Odbins, yeah, yeah. who were then the kind of the trendy wine merchants. Yeah. And um, I came to this interview and he said, well, what experience have you got? I said, well, I've, I've lived in, in the south of France. I've like done, Retzina. Done, yeah, I've done the Vendange. <laughs> you know, I've Shut enough to any grapes, of the pubs. And, and I, can sell, I can sell anything. He said, well, just, that's fine. Did you, have you got a police record? That's a very easy I know, I He said, have you got a police record? I said, yeah. He said, well, what is it? I said, walking on the moon. So <laughs> he said, okay, I'm going to give you the job. because, you know, I think you'll be... So then I had a job going around... He was hiring your character. Yeah, yeah. Going, but that time it was quite funky, you know, it was like posh people who couldn't become doctors yeah. and things would go there. Uh, so I'd go around to all the stores and... And you promote the wines of the other, so you get people to taste this, uh, taste this, you know, so you end up drinking it with yourself, getting stopped. Anyway, the good thing was they put me through all my exams. So I did, I think, three years of diplomas. And of course, in the meantime, because I had a good background of exams, I won scholarships to go to in Alsace and Burgundy. <laughs> and I found myself in chateaus in Bordeaux. Brilliant. You know, drinking Chateau Lafitte. I'm thinking, this is the fucking life. Yeah. So I did that. You know, I'm making money, but... Once I did all my exams, I thought, all I am is a shop manager, you know, and I didn't like the stock taking and all the yeah. regular hours. So then I thought, I'm going to set up my own wine business. Right. So after a few years, I had two kids, six and four, and I had a, a flat with a mortgage. I set up this company. I didn't even have a car. I didn't even have a driving license or anything there. I set up this wine business importing wine. <laughs> Went to an accountant or a friend of a friend who was a bit dodgy setting up a company, got a seal and everything. And suddenly I've told all the people that I'm importing wine and I'm selling it by the case. So my first order, I remember, remember some guy in Oxford Street, a friend of a friend said... Where were you importing it from? France? I wasn't. I, you I, I, was, I was buying it from Cash and Carries. Okay. And he said, I need two cases of champagne this afternoon. Can you deliver it? I said, yeah, okay. I thought, how do I deliver it? So I had a sack barrow, you know, a little barrow that one wheel kept coming off. So I went on the tube to Oxford Street Went down the escalator with his barrow, drove it down off the street, carried it up to him. I said, it's 400 quid, thank you very much. He said, well, where, how did you park there? I said, oh, I found somewhere. For the first six months, I was taking stuff around in barrows and presenting that <laughs> on the tube. around the corner. Yeah, on the tube or, or locally in Chiswick. I put stuff through doors. And I thought, this is not very satisfactory. So I got myself a car, got a little Jeep. So you were like putting, you were get, you're buying wine for a fiver and selling it for six or seven. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. From the it, local, yeah. It was pretty much low, low rent stuff. But then I thought, mm, I really need to up my game on this. So I then um, 
did get you know go to places. I had some rich friends who took me to stay in chateaus. Yeah. Put me in, in touch with with even richer people who said yeah, stock my cellar. So then I was um, you know importing it directly. And at that time it was a big growth business. So I was I was buying on Premier Bordeaux. I was buying vintage port on the port market. Right. I was buying it at auction. I set up a public company at that time because there was a thing called the business expansion scheme where people could get money from investing in small businesses. So I thought, this would do me. So I got like a hundred grand from these people and they get 40% tax relief. So obviously yeah. they're benefiting, except when they started to ask me accounts and things like that. And I was investing it in Bordeaux and the futures market and then buying and selling at the auction house. It was all a bit fly by night. And eventually I got some of this meeting in Hampstead and I thought, I said, look, can we see the portfolio that, that I've got? And I said, well, there isn't a portfolio. I've moved out of wine now because I knew that it was going to crash. Because all the Japanese started buying into it, the Americans started buying into it, and I thought, the market's going to go. So I bought a, a flat in Chiswick in Bedford Park, which is a really poncy area, which was going to be my office. With their money? With their money, yeah. And I said, look, Where's the money, Lebowski? <laughs> I, I said, look, yeah, I said, look, you know. They said, well, you, you, you've got our money on the basis that we're investing in, we're stocking our sellers. I said, look, you're just tax dodgers who, who are using <laughs> yeah, fair the, enough. the system to stock <laughs> yeah. your own sellers. I said, either you're backing me or you're not. Yeah, the your wine, money's now in property. I think the wine market's finished. I'll put, put it into a property in Chiswick. Yeah. It's going to double in a year. And this guy said, oh, we're not very satisfactory. I said, look, if you don't want it, you can have your money back. They said, okay. So I went to the bank. I said, I don't need people to hassle me. I've got this business idea. You can see I've got a track record. I've got a public company. I'm now moving into property. So I paid, wrote them checks out for all their money, told them all to fuck off. And I thought, there's me, a van, and invoice book. I had a member of staff, but I got rid of them because I went out in the countryside once to live in wine. I came back, he was sitting by the fire writing his Christmas cards. <laughs> and it's snowing outside, so I thought, I don't want any stuff. This is like a movie. I'm just <laughs> running this on a shoestring. So then I did that. The property went up in value. I sold it in six months, 150 grand, and I bought it for 65. Didn't even spend a night there. So I thought, I'm up and running now. And then I started with an Australian friend of mine. Some guy came to see us from Australia said, do you want to have a look at this wine? We need somebody to import it. I said, yeah, bring it around. He said, we've got a little office in North End Road. It's got a room with rain coming through the ceiling. And I said, oh, what do you reckon, Craig? He said, yeah, it looks good. It was Jacob's Creek. <laughs> right. So I said, yeah, we'll have that. So we were the first people to import Jacob's Creek. Right. I was flogging it to all the Indian cash and carriers. I was flogging it to the House of Lords. Was it still bottom of the market then? It was It was not known then. It right. was just like... No, where did you pitch it? Middle, bottom? All over. Anywhere. <laughs> Whoever bought yeah, it. Yeah, right. anyone who could pay cash up front. It's pretty much so the same as it is by, today. Funny by cash. I didn't yeah. want to get into credit. So suddenly I'm supplying Wall's Restaurant, The Blue Elephant, 30 little Indian shops. They used to call me Mr. Jacob's Creek. So after a while... So you're quite wealthy now. Yeah, yeah, I was making money. I, How were you uh, on uh, booze, cigarettes... Drugs, really? Yeah, I, I, fine. I drink wine. I don't smoke much, and right. I'm not really a drug taker. Right. I have dabbled, but my drug was actually making money at, yeah. at that time wow. and being free. And you know, I had a propensity for girls. Um, so then I was being flown out to Australia to judge competitions out there. I was flown out for three weeks and taken to the Hilton. Taken out and of course, the you had the wine courses. You knew yeah, your wine. You had, knew your yeah, wine. Yeah, yeah. I was, yeah. I, I was like top of my game. Have you still got it? Probably not, because, you know, I haven't been... You have to keep practicing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I got bored. He said quite glad that the Brooks Bay Sauvignon Blanc that no, he for fine. 12 bucks up the road. <laughs> I, drink, I drink five to ten pound wine. If I get a good wine, I'll appreciate it. But The most expensive wine I ever had was about $800. It was uh, Henschke, Hill of Grace, which yeah, is kind well, of... That's, that's the equivalent to, to like Chateau Patrice or something yeah. in Australia. And I remember having it with my uh, nice girlfriend... It was delicious, but I was going, there's got to be. I mean, I, I was trying to remember it. Go, there's got to be a wine that tastes like this. It's 20 bucks, you know, in the box shop. Well, that's the trouble. You know, you're in there drinking Chateau Lafitte, 53 or something, and you think, yeah, it's great. It's a lovely bottle of wine, but is it any better than yeah. the shag or anything like I mean, that? there's some shit wine that you yeah. can hardly drink. I mean, drink, would I pay a thousand pound? And no. Frankly, the answers I give is no, I wouldn't. Yeah. If, you, if you're rich, you can. But um, So you're making all this dough... What's, yeah, what what could possibly go wrong? Well, yeah, I was doing well. I had um, I had my flat in Chiswick. We had a cottage in Suffolk that my wife used to do the gardening and stuff. I never used to go there to get bored. And then um, started going down to, to Cornwall, to St Ives, where my ancestors also have roots. I remember I was down there one time 
on the beach and I'm thinking, this is uh, great. I, I, I want to make driftwood sculptures. Some well, of them what made you think driftwood? I, I got bored with my, with my business. I was running it. It was easy. I was making money. Was it always just you? Yeah, yeah, it was always just me. Right. Yeah, the partner I had with Jacobs Creek, or the friend I had, it wasn't a formal thing. I said, look, you can have Jacobs Creek because I'm fed up with it now. He then sold out years later to Perno. Right. He's mega rich. I still see him. He goes to QPR. You know? He didn't come and say here or anything. No, no, I'm no. still friends with him. But, but, you know, he, he stuck it out. But I, yeah. I just got bored. I don't want to be, like, called... I remember you said the reason you went Creek. into work was you had the, your two daughters and you said I've got to make sure I provide for them so you kind of got that once you, I had the money yeah. and I had the house and, and I had well, two houses and I had money in the bank I thought well I didn't have the motivation to go yeah, okay. I was flying off to Australia I was flying off to Argentina they, they, they wanted me to go out and represent England in Argentina just when the Falklands War kicked yeah. off so that was cancelled then I was going to Chile I'm thinking well what am I doing I'm in, in first class hotels tasting all these great wines I said well Sooner or later, you know, I'm fed up with it now. Yeah. I went to Cornwall and then I had a kind of epiphany on the beach with the ocean. And I, and I remember just going around collecting driftwood one day. And I thought, oh, you know, this is like, this is what I'm going to do now. So you never done sculpting. You were more about words. You were more yeah. about literature. And suddenly what? You got an epiphany on the beach. What was the epiphany saying to you? You're going to start making wood into something. And you weren't, you weren't handy, were you? Which... No, not at all. I'm not, I'm not handy. I'm not skilled. For, for me, it's about making something out of nothing it goes back to when we were going out with a horse and cart you spot an antique or you spot something yeah, that course. is better yeah. than it is and you get yeah. it for nothing and you make it into yeah, something yeah. so what I have done as an artist is pretty much what my ancestors have done with going out with a horse and cart I was starting out I was making work with rubbish I was going around skips I was getting driftwood on the beach I'd go home with a pile of driftwood my wife would say what's all that so that's the piece of art that I'm going to make and of course they think you're nuts well I was going to say your wife how did she deal with this? Because it's like, you what? Huh? Where? Well, I had to say that I'm dropping out. I'm going to become an artist. You know, it's one of those difficult conversations when you, you've got kids who are like 10 or whatever. They're in school and then there's the possibility they might go to private school. You know, the kind of thing and I'm thinking. So I said, look, I'm fed up with one of my businesses. I'm going to drop out and become an artist. And then people say, you're mad. You know, you've got, everything's fine. At that time, I just bought my first flat in St. Ives as well. I bought a flat on the beach because I've been down there. I think I need a place here. So I managed to get 65 grand off my credit card or my credit cards. Pulled the scam whereby you take money on a credit card, transfer the debt to another credit card, and you get six months interest-free credit. So I did that for like 15 cards at that time. You could do it. <laughs> so I had 65 grand on all my credit cards, and I had six months grace in order to pay them off before they, you had to like give up on the deal. Walk this flat on the beach. People say, oh, what are you doing? You had a midlife crisis. Oh, that's what I was about to say, midlife crisis. Yeah. The exact words were in my uh, head. I said, Trust You're me. about 40 now, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm um, 99 it was. I'm 36, 36, 37. So yeah, just came up to 40. Where I bought this flat on the beach, I then started making driftwood sculptures. And I had an exhibition up here in London and I did 50 and I thought, try them out. And I sold them all. What sort of size are we talking all uh, sizes no small, whatever you small find little, I made small little boxes full of um, beach ephemera right. people love them and I made 50 and I sold them all and I said there we are you well know, like 100 like quid, 100 quid. quid. Yeah, yeah I made 5 grand just really to prove to myself that, that I could make stuff that people would want to buy and then within a year my flat doubled in value it, that whole in St. Ives St. Ives suddenly became really fashionable yeah. in which people started buying second homes down there the old fishing works next door had been converted into posh flats. Suddenly, I'm sitting on a, a place that's worth a quarter of a million pound. What 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 is luck or fate, kismet, or as you said, one of your you know from your ancestry, you get. It's about time one of us got. Like where where is it all playing out with you? I do believe I'm lucky. I've always believed it. Everything's happened as I wanted it to happen. There have been a few setbacks, but nothing major. I just think I've had a charmed existence and. Um, you know, I don't know if it's karma because, you know, I do come from a place of ancestral poverty. It strikes me to me as the, early in the conversation, this, whenever you were talking about a windfall would come, mm. we'd spend the windfall, we live for today. And yeah. also your lack of fear of just going, fuck that, I'm onto this. Mm. A lot of people have great difficulty. Yeah. I will leave the bank when I'm 50. Okay, wait till 55. Okay, mm. wait till 50. You know what I mean? You yeah. seem to have just been able to go. Yeah. Maybe that's from your... 
That's from your pet, your well, dad. When you come from nothing, you know, you think, well, that's worst not such can a, happen. Yeah. That's not such a bad place. You know, we had fun then, and we have fun now when yeah. we've got money. So yeah, I did take terrific risks with uh, money and property and things like that. At that time, my work started to sell in Cornwall. I was getting a name for myself. I was hanging out with like all the top artists down there, like Terry Frost and Sandra Blow. You know, people that are really famous in, in art history and all the cabinetians. And I was working with them as well. And um, so I bought a second property right on the beach, which was Patrick Heron's old place, which was beautiful. And so then I've got like two properties this time. They're both rented out. I've got my house in London. So yeah, I'm getting income from, from property. Yeah. And, I, and I thought, this is great. You know, it's, it's, You're it's much better than getting up, flogging. Was your art liked? Did people think it was... Like, what, what did you make? What, so you made little boxes with it? Be- I, start, I started off making little boxes, filling them full of... Uh, shells and see if ever like shells and things like that. so they seaweed. were kind of charming but yeah. there, there was also a dark side to them because I would do things from circus fairgrounds so I'd use a lot of peep show stuff so a lot of my little boxes were kind of semi-pornographic there's a few in there that you can see I mean I did keep some back right. my favourites so there'd be bits of deck chair material bits of old Victorian porn postcards yeah. you know, I'd construct little worlds in these boxes and I was very influenced by a guy called Joseph Cornell who did box work so yeah, yeah. I was getting stuff from the ocean and I was making free driftwood sculptures that would go on walls yeah. out, out of bits of driftwood that I'd, I'd go around when the boats would, when I heard about a crash. I remember a mouse hole, I heard a fishing boat had gone wrecked on the rocks and in the storm and of course I'd gone down the harbour and started taking it out and the harbour master said, you can't do that, you've got Pay me. respect or whatever, <laughs> you know, you've got to like leave, oh, right, get right. permission. Yeah. I said, how much? He said, 100 quid. So... I gave him a and I just made it. And I made three, number three driftwood sculptures that went into the Royal West England Academy. And it was just parts of an old fishing boat with peeling that I'd hammered together, not yeah. even in a fine way. And suddenly they're in the walls on the Royal West England Academy. And I think it's just brilliant. That's why that, partly why that book was written. An art critic said, I write a book and it, you know, I was known in St. Ives, so all my St. Ives work pretty much. It's kind of do sharpie, right? Yeah, it's, you know, I do like found objects and I like stuff that you can knock together quickly without... Yeah, and, you know, and you're coming to the time now where the Bristol guys at Emin and these guys are all starting to emerge. From, you know, Charlie Satchi's paying people mm. to do kind of cows and from out, Damien Hurst yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So the, yeah. They will be of, after me. I mean, right. obviously, I'm watching you were, you were bef- yeah. I was I was working before, before that and I was doing collage and things like that. I was doing even doing spray painting before a lot of these people because... Um, one of the guys I worked with in London, Dennis Bowen, was a famous Tashis painter after the war. And he taught me how to use car sprays. Gun or the, or the can? Well, the can. Can, yeah. Can, but he, he worked with all kinds of materials. So he, he taught Pete Townsend, Hammersmith College of Art, and he would put Jimi Hendrix on take LSD and throw paint from a balcony onto things. So he was one of the kind of really experimental yeah. painters who I had a very close relationship with. I helped him in his studio at the end. He taught me all these techniques. about. He said, car sprays are great. So you go down and buy a lot of enamel car sprays, spray on board or whatever, stuff you get out of skips, put bleach on it, shake it around, work it with sticks, and you get landscapes. So he used to stay in my Great. my cottage in St. Ives, yeah. and then he then taught me all his skills. Right. So I started doing spray painting in the late 90s in an abstract fine art way, but suddenly everyone's now using sprays mm. because they're doing graffiti. Yeah. Like so. I thought, Stencils, mm, this yeah. is going to be the next thing. So by then I was on my second wife, who was uh, Italian. So the first wife had enough when you... Well, yeah, uh, yeah. I I went off the rails, to be honest, right. um, when I was in St. Ives. And, um, you know, access to, uh, you know, quite a bohemian community. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I did go off the rails and well, I kind of left and right. spent a few years um, just being quite hedonistic. And, How was your um, relationship with your daughters? My daughters are fine, yeah. You were able to see them every now and then? Yeah, yeah, see them all the time. They're yeah. both arty. And um, yeah, they're, you know, I've, I've helped them subsequently buy their own flats, one in Paris and one in London. So right. I've kind of, you know, made amends to a certain extent. But yeah, there was a couple of years that were difficult. Then I made this Italian woman who was a brilliant graphic designer. She cut stencils and I, I said, stencils is going to take off. So this is a pre-Banksy? Well, around the same, yeah, pre-Banksy, yeah. Jeff Aerosol, who's a kind of famous French artist working before Banksy yeah. he used to come and stay here we used to go out on manoeuvres I took my daughters out with him I was work, doing street art under the name of Defy so right. we'd go around and Tom is I didn't really want to get into the political street art because I'm not very politically motivated so I'd do things like Tommy Cooper and Stato right. 
figures from um, popular culture, you know, the kind of Dennis the Menace, you know, with yeah. the bear, all that kind of stuff, you know, it was all a bit quirky. And again, I had some success with that. So I did it for about three years, you know, I just sell pieces. So you also do canvases of your stuff? Yeah, I, I do it on old bits of wood. Old That's the best thing. Right, I mean, right. I don't like canvas, or I don't like the whole graphic way it's gone either. Right. You know, it's become too graphic, but I would do it on... Um, You're still living in St. Ives or in London with the Italian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, no, I, when I got divorced the first time, I had to do a deal with my then wife, and I just gave her the option of having this house in London or the house and the flat in St. Ives. So my wife then chose to have the property in St. Ives. And I thought, mm, at that time, I thought, I, you know, the nice I, beach I was really road. into living in by the ocean and being healthy right. and, you know, going out with the fishermen and making art. Uh, in retrospect, you know, because I'm a Londoner, I've had this house, which is, you know, has brought me good income. I've been running it as a hotel for the last eight years. Mm -hmm. it, it's always served me well. And I can still go down to my old house in St. Ives, but I have to pay my kids £100 a night to go there. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I brought them up as entrepreneurs, yeah. but I didn't expect them to... Yeah, you know, I said, look, you've got to make your property pay. They're grifting their dad. So when I said, I've got an exhibition last year, so I've got, I want to go down for three days, I said, oh, we do you a really good deal. I thought, oh, that's good. I'll not give them 50 quid or something. And they said it's 300 quid, but I think my wife was... Yeah. It's now, it's in her name. And uh, I paid it anyway. But... Um, and then what happened with the Italian? I had a couple of years um, with the Italian lady, but uh, so yeah, it all went a bit belly up. Right. We were collaborating quite a lot. Uh, she wanted to drop out too, but she had a massive house with about ten rooms over over in Ealing. But I think she was into spiritualism and yoga, and she kept on telling me that I needed to be more spiritual and. Go on yoga. You were the god of Ra from yeah. Egypt and stuff. I, I couldn't. She's no. beautiful, but yeah. I couldn't. Um, I couldn't quite bring myself to. I said, Look, I don't need to be spiritual. I'm an artist. Yeah. That's what, spiritual what, what enough. Yeah. What do I need to be spiritual for? Yeah. You know, I want to in the evening. I want to eat sausages, swear, yeah. drink wine, have my mates come and stay. I, have a vodka, I don't necessarily want to be spirited. doing meditation. <laughs> and, and you know, do you think that's the end? Because uh, I'm in this. We've talked briefly about this. I've given up the ad business. And everyone's going, oh, you stupid, blah, blah, you can pull down big salaries, blah, blah, blah. And I look at it and I go, it's probably the best thing I've ever done. Although I haven't got actually a solution to what I'm going to do properly mm. formed yet. This idea of going into work every day in that conventional format has always been something, even when you go back to your school, that you've always kind of rebelled against. Yeah. And even your art rebels against it. Yeah. If you cut you open, that's what's running through yeah. you, right? It's not the work. And know. the need for change. I'm a work. I mean, I like working. It's yeah, been, so do I. I can work at 12. Yeah. I, I think well, I don't need to work, but I, I like working. Yeah. I, like, I like the work element I love. But the one thing that I can't do is I can't have anyone tell me what to do. Yeah, so I can't be answerable to anyone. Because all the times I've had jobs that have been short-lived, like I might get a job in a warehouse or a factory you know, or a bar, you know, I've had someone tell me what to do and I've realised that the person telling me what to do is an idiot. Is, 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 <laughs> is, is far lower down the intellectual food chain exactly. than I am. I remember one time I was in a warehouse. And oh, you've got a I'm bad attitude. Around, you're not a team player. Yeah, Bob, I'm standing you know. around reading a paper or reading the sun or something and the foreman comes and said, what are you doing? I said, absolutely nothing. <laughs> you know, and I knew I was going to get fired on the spot. But, um, yeah, it's, it's having anyone tell me what to do. So, but in order to get to that position, you have to work double hard, especially when you're running your own business, as you probably know, you know, anyone who kind of self-made men are, are driven to run a successful business. It's not easy, especially in any economic climate, but the way it's going now, it's getting even more difficult. Well, I never set up my own business because I just think I'd get bored with it. It's like, mm -hmm. to me, I didn't have children for the same reason. I get bored with children, I think. Yeah. I like to be like water moving all the time. So, you know, yeah. I, but occasionally I'll latch, like, I can't believe I've done eight, 70 of these. 70. You know, and there's another great, I'm going to get to a hundred now because this yeah. has bitten me. Right. And I'm, mm. I'm getting no money for this, but I love these conversations. But must and these a, conversations are very different than if I just come here for supper and just had wine with you and Carrie, mm. like this actual discussion is so much wider. Like I, I sit down with mates I've known for 10 years and I find out stuff I never knew about. Them. Well, you become skilled as an interviewer as well. But it, it's just the, the concept 
means that we're going to be talking in depth for an hour or whatever about our lives to each other, mainly your life, and bouncing stuff off each other like that we would never bounce off each other in a pub or restaurant environment. We're talking about what's going on today, what's going on tomorrow, did you see that? Oh, I would, you know, For me, it's a bit therapeutic. Mm. You know, hearing all these people. And also, I'm a fucking guy who most of my friends say can't shut the fuck up. And it makes me shut up and listen yeah, to people. Yeah. <laughs> For an hour. Should it be yourself? I so my other personalities <laughs> at me about that already. Maybe my hundredth episode. <laughs> so where do we go then after the Italian job? I shouldn't call that. But. Okay, so <laughs> I told you to blow the bloody doors off. Yeah, I know. No, okay, uh, sorry. Uh, so where scary. did we go? <laughs> I'd cut that out. Yeah. So presumably you and her yeah, part I, of company. Um, I moved back here. It was all quite, kind of tempestuous, you know. I'm kind of intellectually driven rather than emotionally driven. I am I think, too. I think in all my marriages and various government, yeah, I think they think that I'm not really, I'm not kind of an emotional wreck. I'm logical. I make intellectual decisions mm. that can be perceived as lack of empathy and I've often had that question I lack him you know I make a decision that, that is intellectually driven and that's how I run my life you know yeah. I run it on intellectual premises that aren't necessarily politically correct or or emotionally um, understanding uh, what's the word emotionally mature emotionally something yeah. that's emotionally current now I mean I you guess know, the point is you can turn a, a, a decision that's fraught with emotion you can clearly see a rational black and white now we have to do that like I mean I, I had a girlfriend and we were fighting all the time and she w- would admit that we were fighting all the time we were kind of toxic we were toxic a little bit yeah. and I said we have to stop seeing each other and she go oh come here but like that was the actual answer otherwise we'd spend a year fighting all the time and I go we can't keep doing that and it wasn't her fault it was more me you yeah. know it was both of us well, this but we were just people. we were yeah. bouncing you know because I thought then I was, I was the problem. Like, like, oh, I'm the guy who's constantly fighting. And I don't like fighting with people. No. Well, nobody does, but, you know, it happens. Yeah. And, uh, it's a two, both people are, you know, it's normally yeah. only one person. But just making that call to say, right, we're, we have to but stop. Yeah, because it's, 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 a cold, it's a cold decision yeah. to make, yeah. you know. And um, one of my girlfriends said that I wasn't emotionally available. I've heard that. Quite sure what that meant. But, yeah, I've um, heard that. But I think it's because you keep... As an artist, you could kind of there's a little kind of splinter of ice in your heart sometimes, and you kind of you know. I don't want to get hurt by women. I mean, if I'm being honest, I I have a line from one of the poems I've written, which was "Shutter curtains ever present on this guy, a man too afraid to ever even try for you and I." You know, I, I, there's always a piece of me that goes, "If I need to get out that back door, I can get out that back door." Yeah. And people say, "Oh, that means you don't love me." No, I do love you. Yeah. I really do love you. But like, yeah. It's almost like there's this feeling that I can't give it the full hug. Yeah. And I don't mind that because I feel all I can say is I am and I do in my own mind. Mm. But I do have this part of me that it's self-protection. It's probably from when I think for me it was from my childhood. I think it's probably from your childhood. It's like, you know, you kind of go you, me against the world. That's what it is. Yeah. Well, it's it's obvious that, you know, people have come from broken, fractured backgrounds. That's their modus operandi. Yeah. It's not the end of the world that you go into relationships or marriages and, and it gets divorced or no. people die. People, if you come from a very stable, I think people come from the extremely stable backgrounds with happy families and massively disadvantaged, you know, to a certain extent to cope with, um, you know, tragedy. And, and often that's why artists or artists is because they've come from this place. Yeah, the normality of a happy childhood and upbringing it's a myth it's a, well, it's, it's, a it's a myth in one in many ways but it's also and i hate saying this because a, a huge part of it is unhappy but you miss out on the tapestry yeah and you know the roller coaster that it yeah. should really be and that your life has been you know which is which should be a movie actually it's astonishing you know? so, yeah, where do we go now we get to carry time yeah how did you two meet? Well, I've known Carrie for about 12 years. When I was shacked up with my Italian wife, Carrie was also with her partner, and we kind of crossed over a bit with exhibitions and things like that. And at that time, we had mutual friends, and we were both from Chiswick. So, you know, I always kind of had a soft spot for Carrie. You know, immensely talented lady, and uh, very funny. So we'd show together in her Black Sheep Gallery. 
my wife took a real dislike to her. I don't know what it was. Sixth sense. Yeah, she <laughs> took a dislike to any woman that that. Um, well, you also have previous. Come on, you're yeah, not. You're, I know. <laughs> I've got, got a lot of previous. Yeah. Every woman dating you must be going. Oh God. Well, <laughs> Am I the so, one? So look, you know, nothing. nothing and then, then I, um, about three years ago, I think, or two years ago, bumped into Carrie again. We we do bump in, into each other from time to time, and I have followed her career and. Um, so we just said, well, let's come around and have some dinner. We'll have a few friends around on day before New Year's Eve and, um, you know, just chill out, you know. So we did that and um, got talking. Then New Year's Eve, we went to some party around some neighbours and um, we took some mushrooms and uh, got quite high and just, you know, had a bit of a blast, really. Had a lot of fun, you know, talking about stuff. Carrie's like myself. She's from a kind of background where... It's all very mm. dysfunctional, so mm. I kind of identify with that. And so we have had similar childhoods. We just kind of thought, well, maybe we should try collaborating yeah. a bit on our mutual interests. You know, I know mm. she's a political activist, and that, that's something that I don't pursue. But, you know, there are crossovers in our work to do with um, subversiveness, yeah. you, know, you know, using popular culture, you know, using sexuality, using... I quite like the kind of... And I, this is not. I hope this isn't insulting to you, but I quite like the sort of Kenneth Williamsness mm. of a lot of your work. It's like you know, it's kind yeah, of yeah. it's kind of that. Yeah. Like, oh, matron, stop! Oh, know. You know, do yeah. stuff. Yeah. So oh, they do. The, we, yeah, both but, love, we both love that. I mean, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I I love popular culture. I make. I don't apologize for it. Yeah. You know, I watch the Carry On films. Yeah. I, I love porn. I love all those sitcoms. I've grown up as a TV age, so you know, and I love humor. I like having a lot of humour in my art, and it's also full of irony, but there's dark stuff too, but I think you can dress it up. So basically, we went to Amsterdam, we crazy decided, why don't we get all our brands tattooed on our bodies? Yeah. So, as you know, my brand is Rebel Not Taken, and Carrie's brand is Mad in England, which I've always admired, because, you know, Mad in England, it's like, celebrates yeah. eccentricity. Yeah. I love eccentrics. Most of my friends are kind of barking mad. Yeah. And, you know, and I think Carrie carries on that border of, like, being an eccentric person, which, which I've always liked. So I've got Mad in England, which is Carrie's brand tattooed on my right. one of my arms, and Rebel not taken. And she's got. And she's got the reverse, yeah. So we had these, and I think, well, that's a pretty big we, commitment for you, yeah, <laughs> Mister Emotionally Unavailable. But, but yeah, but then she said, I said, look, you know, I'm sixty, whatever. It's a tattoo, you know. I mean, exactly. You know, it's not the end of the world. You know, I'm, I'm not going to kind of suddenly think, oh, I might get married again. And she's like, yeah. well, who cares? You know, yeah. my uncles had tattoos yeah, yeah. from the navy. You yeah. know, one of them had. Um, had a, a woman's leg Popeye. down. Woman's leg down. Yeah, yeah, Popeye. A woman's leg down one arm, and a woman's leg down his and torso. The, and the hair under his arm. And his arm. Go on, Popeye, open your arms. Uh, buy me a pint. You don't know, open his arms. Of course, a great big hairy minge. Yeah. So, well. Thought, Which yeah. is funny for the first few weeks of your I know, I know. tattoo for when you're 80. So why not? So, yeah. So, we did that. And then we thought, well... There was artistic reasons because we could collaborate. Yeah, totally. You're very, you're very simpatico. Yeah, and you know, I know Carrie's not great with the whole money thing. She knows that I'm kind of sharp yeah. with, with regards to selling and, and making money. I said, look, I could help you. You can help me. You've got probably a bigger client base. Yeah, you, you're better known in, in that kind of urban art world, and I'm probably better known in the kind of fine art world. Although it's specialist really to like St Ives. But, you know, we're both workers and we both have interesting ideas. We're both interested in comedy. So we could, like, do something like that. And I, I could, like, use my nouse to, to, yeah. to get stuff that we is saleable. It has kind of come together quite a lot because if we were collaborating and then we put stuff in and it would sell. So there'd be some links to some of the work that these guys are doing together. Very funny playing cards. On the blurb for the podcast, you'll be able to link and how you can purchase some of it. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, um, how do you describe it? Well, I mean, it's pop art. We're influenced by pop art for sure. We're also influenced by material. So we will both make plates. I mean, I wouldn't make plates before, but now I'm making plates and I'm using Carrie's kiln, Carrie's transfers. Carrie's a ceramics artist. She, primarily. She's a, got all yeah. the ceramic skills, so I've tapped into those. Carrie wouldn't necessarily have worked before with sardine cans or playing cards, which I've always done. I've always worked with playing cards. I've always yeah. worked with you know, elements of like, popular culture. We do collage, which I, I've done probably best known as a collagist. So we'll do playing cards and that would be my idea. She will introduce her own take on it. So we're putting our own take on things and so far it's been quite successful. So we, we sign everything that we do mutually as a collaboration. I decided that we should document all these things that we do by making books. So last 
Christmas, New Year, we spent three days collaging a deck of 50s playing cards. But all naked women, you know, saucy, but, you know, yeah. titillating, rude expressions, you know, political expressions, using Carrie's activist stuff, because so I like smashed the patriarchy, yeah. using my stuff, which is probably a bit more basic and puerile. And then I said, we need to put these in a book, because we had an exhibition that got banned. It was banned on social media. And so I Because they were naked women. Yeah, because it's naked women, because <laughs> it's nipples. There we go. Where we and go? then you've got, you know, you've got the feminist saying, oh, But you could probably put the Venus de Milo in. Women's bodies, you know. <laughs> and, and you think, well, look, let's just, we're just having fun. We're not tipping a nod to anyone. We're not apologising for everything. You know, if people find it offensive, that's your problem. No more you fun. Know, I don't like political correctness. Yeah. Carrie's got a few more problems with it because of well, the, who the, she is an activist. Just to maybe dwell on that for a second, do you think, though, that it's. Whose political correctness is the issue? When I was in America, if I wanted to say nigger to a black guy who's a friend of mine, yeah. I can call him nigger. Exactly. Anyone can call me Mick or Paddy. Yeah. But some people can't call me Mick or Paddy. Yeah. I get very fucking annoyed. Yeah. Right? But there were lots of sort of waspy Americans who, if I brought up at a dinner party the word, the N-word, yeah. I'm a fucking mad racist. Yeah, exactly. I'm not the guy, oh, some of my best friends are black. I'm not fucking that. I'm not. Yeah. You either are or you aren't. But you can't criminalise language. No, and also the, con- like the C word. Yeah, yeah. Well, we can't say, con- yeah, we're allowed to say cunt on my podcast, by the way, sorry. The, the C word, oh, it, it, it's derogatory to women. I'm going, no, it is not. We have to have a word in our lexicon yeah. that defines that is the baddest prick you can be. Yeah. Oh, well, why is it prick for and, and worse is cunt? Oh, come on, please, really. really. Well, Shakespeare had about 50 years saying the, the cunt word. It's art. You, you know, it's no yeah. rules. No. And unfortunately, we are, like, regressive leftism is driving us oh, down this well, path of... Tell me about it. Sacrificing humour on the order of political correctness. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, a lot of my, my work is, um, is hammering that home. But, you know, it doesn't make you a lot of friends. You know, we're swimming against the tide, really. Like I have this because I used to do stand-up comedy myself and it's like you know the, the, you can't do rape jokes okay well, can you do bed, dead baby jokes can you do cancer jokes is that yeah. okay like anybody in the audience could have any of those things happen to them okay exactly. and the reason is you're the court jester in fact you're, the court jester is a lot of the archetype that I feel from you and Carrie you know oh, there's, yeah. the, there's the, you know the court jester yeah. usually got his head hacked exactly. off exactly because he overstepped the fucking mark. Yeah. And that's cool too. Exactly. And I, I like the day the court jester go, gets brought, written out of life is the well, day we today, become robots. Even today we've been up to Saatchi to um, sign some prints that they've commissioned for this show. And it's one of our playing cards. And they've put it up on uh, social media. And immediately some feminists have come on and said, oh, use it in a naked woman. I know. You know, I'm not quite sure it. about that. Harry said, well, the last book we did was Naked Men with... Great big cocks, yeah. You know, with every swear word about yeah. queers that you can imagine, queer as fuck, it's available. Yeah, so we've done raw flush, we've done queer as fuck. So we're offending everybody. Comedians like uh, Doug Stanhope walk the line perfect. I don't know how he does it, but he walks. He's done jokes about every taboo, but in a way that are bits. He's 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 done a bit about his, about bar backing his mother's death, yeah, feeding her pills. He's done that as a 20 minute bit. Like, I don't know how he does it, but like, you know, he just, and he does it by what you guys are doing. It's like, you show me exactly where this is really a problem. Exactly. Really a problem, you know? So I revere comedians. I mean, all my real heroes are comedians. Yeah, yeah. They go beyond, you know, and they should be given license yeah. to do what they like. I still, occasionally listen to um, Derek and Clive, you know, yeah. and you think, they won't be out of that to get away no, with that now. No. You know, it's scandalous. And, you know, you, even back then you had, like, Roy Chilby Brown, you had people yeah. like that who were really racist. Yeah. Now, really, really racist. Yeah. And it was working man north of England yeah. racism. And it was, you know, at a time when there were packy bashing going on and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. It, like, you couldn't do it today. And I can get why you yeah. shouldn't be able to do that yeah. today. Because I don't think it's that funny. The essence of comedy is, is it funny? Not is it fucking politically correct? Or is, exactly. it, is, it, is yeah. the irony biting yeah. or is the satire nailing we shouldn't allow freedom of speech to the point where deeply troubling areas like extreme homophobia Everton fans throwing bananas at black players that kind of really awful racism you know what it's not funny yeah. and it doesn't deserve a place yeah. in my yeah. view you know tranny toilets on the other hand <laughs> you know with all due respect yeah. to my it's really large 
uh, cross-dressing and uh, transvest. I've, I've already got in trouble for using the wrong terms. Community. There's other fish to fry. There's bigger things going on in the world, like the planet itself. I know you have to go to the bathroom. I've said that before in the podcast, but we're done. I think, are we? What's the what? what what's your view on the state of the world? Quickly, do you think it's? Are you happy to be? We're fucked. You know, we're in a period now where civilizations run its course. Half of America is obese. You know, there's too many people on the planet. Do you view a mass extinction coming? Yeah. Really. Climate driven. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you, you can't go on. You can't go on abusing the planet where we have done. The human race is becoming quickly not fit to survive. Do you think robots will take over? Yeah, something will happen. There'd be some some evolution. You know, I'm sure the cockroaches would always survive and things like that. But you know, artificial intelligence is very interesting. But uh, I'm not going to be involved with it. So you know, I live, pretty much live for today, and uh, I don't concern myself too much with bad news. I don't read papers. Right. I don't follow it because I don't want to be wallowing in negativity. So you know, I just do what I'm here to do. I'm put on this planet for a reason. I'm pursuing that reason. For those few generations that remain, what would be your one sentence message? Well, I remember in 1964 when I was at school and uh, our history teacher, who was very charismatic and very young, came in and said, I won't be teaching you tomorrow. I said, why is that so? He said, because the Cuban Missile Crisis has just erupted and... I'm not going to come in and fucking teach you lot. I'm going to go hitchhiking around the world drinking for the few months left that this planet's got. And you think, oh, Christ, I've gone home. I said, oh, our history teacher said the world's coming to an end. My granddad said, oh, you know, we survived the war, we survived the blitz, so I wouldn't worry too much about it. No, six months later, it's all blown over. Got a supply teacher. Guess who's come back teaching us? Oh, hello, sir, what are you doing back here? Oh, well, you know, come back from my job, I've run out of money. And you think, well... At that time, I actually thought, this is it. He did the right thing. Yeah, he probably did. He did the fucking but right thing. I admired thing. him. Look, I he's admired right. Him. Why would he spend six exactly. months teaching? Exactly. <laughs> and then he's being pragmatic. And he, you know, he's like, well, actually, I mean, now... You yeah, know. he's sheepishly skulking yeah. back into his old job, but fine. We loved him. Yeah. We loved him. I said, what did you do? You know, he spent one lesson just telling us about hitchhiking in Germany. Which you wouldn't have been able fantastic to Fantastic teacher. Bob Osborne's history teacher from 1964 (laughs) will be right someday. Until then, Bob Osborne, thanks for being on the planet, Shawnee. I loved it.